So today's reading has got to be one of my favorite passages in all of philosophy. It was one of the passages that most intrigued me when I was an undergraduate taking my first ever philosophy class. It still never fails to sort of enwrapped me with its wild flights of speculative fancy. Um, but unfortunately, we're not going to be able to spend a whole heck of a lot of time on it, largely because I think it's largely self-explanatory when you know why it's happening, um, but also because I know that this week there's a lot of extra stuff with the research paper preparation videos and all that to, to wade through. Um, so we're going to try and keep this short. Uh, like, I'll go through the major points, touch on some of the more, like, particularly crazy examples um, and sort of try and capture what Philo is doing through sections five to seven. Um, but for the most part, I will leave you to it since you've got enough on your plate. Um, so last time, as we discussed, we are still confronting Cleanthes's argument about the nature of God, specifically that since the world is like a machine, therefore the creator of the world must be like a human intelligence. Um, since machines are designed, therefore the world in its complexity must also have been designed. Um, and Philo has emphasized that this is an analogical argument and not even a very good one. The comparison between the world and the machine is weak at best. Um, but more to that point, any observation, any argument based on an a posteriori empirical awareness based on experience in short, um, must be derived from analogy and therefore cannot give a deductive or 100% sort of backing to that argumentation. Um, and this is where he really follows through with that. Like, as much as he is making that argument, you know, directly in the preceding parts, here we see the results. Um, if, in fact, Philo follows through with Cleanthes' fundamental principle that like effects demonstrate like causes, he is basically free to make all sorts of wild assumptions about God. Um, so in part five especially, he points out that like if we are to assume um, that God is, you know, like human intelligence, that the world is like a machine, then we have to come to a bunch of other conclusions about God as well. Um, specifically, like, when humans go about making their machines, uh, frequently there are problems with that. There are, like, issues that are running into consequences. First, by this method of reasoning, you renounce all claim to infinity in any of the attributes of the deity. For, as the cause ought only to be proportioned to the effect, and the effect, so far as it falls under our cognizance, is not infinite, what pretensions have we upon your suppositions to ascribe that attribute to the divine being? In short, if we're looking at a finite world, no reason to think that there's an infinite cause. So God's infinity is right out. Secondly, you have no reason on your theory for ascribing perfection to the deity, even in his finite capacity, or for supposing him free from every error, mistake, or incoherence in his undertakings. There are many inexplicable difficulties in the works of nature, which, if we allow a perfect author to be proved a priori, are easily solved, and become only seeming difficulties from the narrow capacity of man, who cannot trace infinite relations. But according to your method of reasoning, these difficulties become all real, and perhaps will be insisted on as new instances of likeness to human 
human art and contrivance. At least you must acknowledge that it is impossible for us to tell from our limited views whether this system contains any great faults or deserves any considerable praise if compared to other possible and even real systems. Could a peasant, if the Aeneid were read to him, pronounce that poem to be absolutely faultless, or even assign to it its proper rank among the productions of human wit, he would never see any other production? In short, if we are just a bunch of pathetic human finite beings, how could we possibly appreciate a perfect creation, much less ascribe perfection to the deity when we have no experience of it? God can't be infinite because we're looking at a finite effect and therefore a finite cause. God can't be perfect because we can't recognize perfection, must assume that the world is imperfect, and then must assume an imperfect effect from an imperfect cause. Third, on, uh, in the second column, and what shadow of an argument, continued Philo, can you produce from your hypothesis to prove the unity of the deity? A great number of men join in the building of a house or a ship, in rearing a city and framing a commonwealth. Why may not several deities combine in contriving and framing a world? This is only so much greater similarity to human affairs. By sharing the work among several, we may so much further limit the attributes of each and get rid of that extensive power and knowledge which must be supposed in one deity, and which, according to you can only serve to weaken the proof of his existence. And if such foolish, such vicious creatures as man can yet often unite in framing and executing one plan, how much more are those deities or demons whom we may suppose several degrees more perfect? In short, like, if we are going to assume that God is like human beings, that the creation of the world is similar to the creation of a machine, why shouldn't we assume other similarities between God and human beings as well? Why not have a finite God? Why not have an imperfect God? Why not have multiple gods working together on a single project? Why should we assume any of that? We cannot get to the Christian God from observing the world around us. We cannot get to a single united cause from the observations of the world around us. And you can see that this has direct application to Aquinas as well. Like, Philo is rejecting not just Cleanthes' like, teleological argument, this watchmaker argument, this analogical argument, but he is basically saying, you know, like, you just can't get there from here. If we were looking for similarities between, you know, the creator of the world and the creator of the universe, well, we can find all sorts of similarities, but the assumptions are just wild and, you know, speculative at this point. There's no point to, to you know, pick one over the other. As he says on page 946, why not become a perfect anthropomorphite? Why not assert the deity or deities to be corporeal, to have an eyes, a nose, a mouth, ears, etc.? Epicurus maintained that no man had ever seen reason but in a human figure. Therefore, the gods must have a human figure. And this argument, which is deservedly so much ridiculed by Cicero, becomes, according to you, solid and philosophical. In a word, Cleanthes, a man who follows your hypothesis is able, perhaps, to assert or conjecture that the universe sometime arose from something like design, but beyond that position he cannot ascertain one single circumstance. This world, for aught he knows, is very faulty and imperfect compared to a superior standard, and was only the first rude essay of some infant deity who abs afterwards abandoned it, is only like the crappy practice effort of some kid god who doesn't know what he's doing. It is the work only of some dependent, inferior deity, and is the object of derision to his superiors. Maybe this is the work of some lousy draftsman who, you know, is has, like, his boss looking over his shoulder saying, you know, that's really garbage, you should probably try something better. Or it is the production of old age and dotage and some superannuated 
superannuated deity, and ever since his death has run on adventures from the first impulse and active force which it received from him. Maybe this is some crappy like world as designed by some really old god who is way past his prime and no longer knows what he's doing we ours is the world of a demented and you know incompetent god in short we don't know like we are in no position to judge we have no reason to think that we're not um if we are going to assume that like the creation of the world is similar to the creation of human artifice from human hands then we have to assume human fallibilities and weaknesses as well there's no reason not to at the very least if you were going to assume similarity then push it forward by all means there's no reason not to and you'll notice that he even mentions that, like, Demia is freaking out at this point. You justly give signs of horror, Demia, at these strange suppositions, but these and a thousand more of the same kind are Cleanthes's suppositions, not mine. From the moment the attributes of the deity are supposed finite, all these have place, and I cannot, for my part, think that so wild and unsettled a system of theology is, in any respect, preferable to none at all. In short, just as Cleanthes was arguing that Demia was an atheist for his argument that God was simple and therefore inexplicable, un not understandable, not comprehensible to human reason, now Philo has turned it around and said that Cleanthes is basically an atheist in his own right. Um, if he is saying that, they, that God's what we know about God is entirely dependent on this similarity that we observe in nature, and this similarity is so weak as to offer us no real evidence of what God is like, well, then we got to assume basically anything and nothing. We have literally no idea what God might be like. We certainly can't call him perfect, we who do not know anything about perfection. We certainly can't call him infinite when we look around and see only finite effects of this in supposedly infinite cause we certainly can't call him even one god or one good god why would we assume that um it is as likely to say that there is an evil god um that there is a god who is bad at his job um there's no reason to assume that the god who created this world really had any idea what he was doing but if anything things just get even more complicated and even more ambiguous from here um, by part seven, like we've gone on to suggest that, you know, the world could have been, or doesn't even resemble a machine so much as it resembles like a body that it resembles like a tree or an animal. And therefore perhaps it was created not through the prod product of like imagination, intention, reason, invention, but rather through reproduction, um, Philo suggests that comets are basically just the seeds of worlds traveling through space, waiting to reach some place where they can blossom into full-fledged Earths in their own right, um, just like seeds from a tree or eggs from an animal. Um, there's no reason to argue that like the world was designed when it could just as easily have been generated, reproduced, um, vegetated, or for that matter, become the product of instinct. Um, perhaps matter itself has this desire to create order in it. Um, Philo has suggested this before, and he definitely fills it out here. Um, notice on page 950 in the first column, he says, um, In reality, Demia, it may reasonably be expected that the larger the views are which we take of things, the better will they conduct us in their conclusions concerning such extraordinary and such magnificent subjects. In this little corner of the world alone, there are four principles, reason, instinct, generation, and vegetation, which are similar to each other and are the causes of similar effects. 
What are a number of other principles may we naturally suppose in the immense extent and variety of the universe? Could we travel from planet to planet and from system to system in order to examine each part of this mighty fabric? Um, he suggests, this is kind of like a warped perspective, um, but on page 951 he has this kind of skewed understanding of Hinduism where he describes the act of Brahma as like a spider spinning its web and then drawing it back into itself and that the world is designed like this spider spinning its web. Um, he says it's fairly ridiculous. He obviously does not respect or, for that matter, understand Hinduism all that terribly well. But he suggests that why shouldn't it be spun like a spider web? Um, if we were a world of spiders, why wouldn't we think that that was the primary way that the universe was created? But importantly, like Philo has suggested on multiple occasions, like every time that he stresses the point about Occam's razor, about reducing the number of causes to a single one or as few as possible, why wouldn't we just say that there is a faculty of order in matter itself? Why wouldn't we say that the world basically came about of its own purposes? Um, so you'll notice on page 952 in part 8, um, he says, like in the last full paragraph or the paragraph that like ends the first column, this very consideration too, which we have stumbled on in the course of our argument, suggests a new hypothesis of cosmogony that is not absolutely absurd and improbable. Is there a system, an order, an economy of things by which matter can preserve that perpetual agitation which seems essential to it and yet maintain a constancy in the forms which it produces? There certainly is such an economy, for this is actually the case with the present world. The continual motion of matter, therefore, in less than infinite transpositions must produce this economy or order, and by its very nature that order, when once established, supports itself for many ages, if not to eternity. But wherever matter is so poised, arranged, and adjusted as to continue in perpetual motion and yet preserve a constancy in the forms, its situation must, of necessity, have all the same appearance of art and contrivance which we observe at present. In short, he's saying, why not just have evolution? Like, this is before Darwin writes his theory of evolution, so Hume is not articulating it nearly as clearly as Darwin does or with nearly the sort of, um, like, scientific backing and observational reasoning that Darwin employs. But he's basically saying, like, why can't we just explain the world in terms of matter rearranging itself, in terms of, like, the laws of generation and reproduction itself imposing order on each successive generation? He's basically saying, like, we would no, we would not be able to tell the difference. There is no indication in the created order as we see it to indicate that it was at some point created. Um, we live in a world that is orderly, but would we able to would be even be able to appreciate the order of the universe had it not been orderly? Um, scientists have argued that the reason why, like, we wonder about whether, about how orderly our part of the universe is, the reason why we suggest that it was created by some god, is because we could only have come about, like, our brains could only have developed in an environment so orderly, so predictable, so consistent, as to suggest that. Like, it is just dumb luck that we live on a planet that itself does not like burst into flame on a regular basis. Um, and Philo kind of anticipates this argument as well. Um, he suggests the Epicurean cosmogony on page 951 at the beginning of part eight. 
For instance, what if I should revive the old Epicurean hypothesis? This is commonly, and I believe justly, esteemed the most absurd system that has yet been proposed, yet I not, know not whether, with a few alterations, it might not be brought to bear a faint appearance of probability. Instead of supposing matter infinite, as Epicurus did, let us suppose it finite. A finite number of particles is only susceptible of finite transpositions, and it must happen in an eternal duration that every possible order or position must be tried an infinite number of times. This world, therefore, with all its events, even the most minute, has before been produced and destroyed, and will again be produced and destroyed, without any bounds and limitations. No one who has a conception of the powers of infinite in comparison of finite will ever scruple this determination. Basically, he's saying, like, there are any number of ways that this world could have come about. It could have come about through design, as the theists suggest. It could have come about through reproduction or generation, like a vegetable or an animal. It could have some inherent principle of order, like the principle of natural selection that Darwin suggests, and thus create order in that way. Or it could just be dumb freaking luck that we ended up on a planet that is itself orderly and are observing order at work, which again is sort of the contemporary scientific attitude toward it. Like, it's just an accident. Order can only observe order where order already exists. Like, if you were brought up in a, on a chaotic world like Mercury or Venus, you would never have gotten to the point of an intelligence sophisticated enough to appreciate its own possible origins. Um, the universe is biased. We live in a particularly orderly part of the universe, and it is only here that we can appreciate our own development. Um, so all of this, all of these possibilities are equally likely to Philo. And Cleanthes' argument that like causes cause like effects and like effects suggest like causes can yield any number of wild interpretations and possibilities because the likeness between the effects, the likeness between the world and design is so weak that it could just as easily be this natural principle or generation or vegetation or instinct or spiders spinning webs. All of it is equally likely, equally possible, equally within the realm of possibility based on this speculative premise, this illogical logic. Now, Cleanthes does present a rebuttal. He makes several observations about the strange, almost inexplicable ways that the world seems to conform to design. How, you know, there's no need for humans to have two eyes and two ears, but here we have them. Um, we have camels in the desert, which allow humans to cross the sandy dunes of Arabia. Um, this seems to be the product of design. Why would these creatures exist otherwise? It seems like an obvious evidence of order and arrangement in the universe. But Philo says, like, yeah, all of our hypotheses show evidence and show problems. None of them is perfect. As he says at the top of page 953, can we ever reasonably expect greater success in any attempts of this nature? Or can we ever hope to erect a system of cosmogony that will be liable to no exceptions and will contain no circumstance repugnant to our limited and imperfect experience of the analogy of nature? Like, we're not going to get there from here. That's the point. As much as Philo has been suggesting all of these wild systems of understanding the origins of the universe, he is not committed to any of them specifically because his argument is not about the origin of the universe, it's about the way that we do arguments. The problem that Philo has isn't with design as the principle, it's with any principle being adopted at all. There's no reason to, to prefer 
any one of these principles over any of the others. And what he is attacking is not Cleanthes' system, but the way that Cleanthes got to his system. Philo doesn't have a problem with God as designer any more than he has a problem with, you know, the world reproducing sexually. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, he's got to say, like, there's no reason to prefer Cleanthes' system. There's no point to arguing intelligence rather than these other ideas. And importantly, he ties this to his skepticism. At the bottom of page 953, he stresses all religious systems, it is confessed, are subject to great and insuperable difficulties. Each disputant triumphs in his turn while he carries on an offensive war and exposes the absurdities, barbarities, and pernicious tenets of his antagonist. In short, like, the Hindu can attack the Christian and show all the weaknesses in Christianity. The Christian can attack the Muslim and show all the weaknesses in Islam. The Muslim can attack the Buddhist who can who will reveal all the weaknesses in Buddhism and the Buddhist can attack the Hindu and expose all the weaknesses in Hinduism. Everyone can attack each other's system because all of these systems are flawed, are imperfect. But importantly, Philo goes on, all of them on the whole prepare a complete triumph for the skeptic who tells them that no system ought ever to be embraced with regard to such subjects for this plain reason that no absurdity ought ever to be assented to with regard to any subject. A total suspense of judgment is here our only reasonable resource. And if every attack, as is commonly observed, and no defense among theologians is successful, how complete must be his victory, who remains always with all mankind on the offensive, and has himself no fixed station or abiding city which he is ever, on any occasion, obliged to defend." Philo is basically justifying skepticism here. He is saying that every religious system, be it the Brahmins with their spiders, or the Christians with their god, or the Buddhists with no god at all, or, you know, who knows what sort of crazy principle might be in place, there's no reason to prefer any of them. They are all subject to doubt, and therefore the only logical recourse is to withhold assent, to reject the lot to suspend one's judgment and embrace none of them and admit, as Philo said at the outset, that we don't know jack shit about where we came from, that we have no idea what God is like, that we have no idea where the world originated. Um, there is no point to presenting a system because it is all on such flimsy argumentation. It is all so far out of the realm of our experience. And honestly, I suspect that that would extend to scientific understandings of the Big Bang as well. Like, if you brought Hume into the 21st century and explained scientific argumentation, he might be more friendly to it than he is to, you know, Demia and Cleanthes with their various religious systems, but probably not by a whole lot. At the end of the day, he would just say, okay, so you observed that, like, space is expanding like the, the distances between objects suggest that they were cast out from some common point cool like great is that all you got like he would be satisfied with this explanation he would be totally cool with the possibility that it came from some central location but that wouldn't rule out the possibilities of other things a designer who made the big bang or the possibility of multiple big bangs maybe one day our solar system is going to crash headlong into another solar system thrust from another position in some vast unspeakable universe we'll know we have no idea 
Um, we and scientists at their best admit this um, because they are practicing the same level of skepticism as Hume does. But Hume and science should both recognize that it is all extrapolation, that there are wild uncertainties all over the place, and that the best we can do is point to the little bit of experience we have, the little bit of repeated analogical data that we can produce, and say, this might be the case. And that's it. Stop there. Um, assume the limits of our knowledge and respect the limits of our knowledge as Descartes has emphasized and as Socrates has emphasized and as virtually all of our philosophers have emphasized know when you don't know what you're talking about um, and in this case Cleanthes and basically all religious theologians don't know what they're talking about um, that is the point that Philo is trying to drive home here and arguably that's probably the point that Hume is trying to drive home here as well. Um, and this represents kind of the end of our conversation about Cleanthes's argument. Um, we are not going to spend much more time on it in this dialogue. And in fact, the next move, like literally the very next part, part nine, begins right where we left off with this discussion about skepticism with Demia presenting a whole new argument. Um, but if so many difficulties attend the argument a posteriori, said Demia, had we not better adhere to that simple and sublime argument a priori, which by offering to us infallible demonstration cuts off at once all doubt and difficulty? Basically, we're done with Cleanthes. Like, Cleanthes fell apart. Philo poked him until the entire argument fell to shreds. He basically demonstrated that it was equally likely that, you know, any number of other possibilities was the case, and therefore there was no reason to prefer Cleanthes' argument that, like, the world comes from intelligence. So Demia picks it up instead. Demia says, all right, let's do a different approach. Why not use the a priori reasoning we've seen before? Uh, and the argument he presents is almost exactly beat for beat Aquinas. Um, which is kind of weird to think of this as being an a priori argument, because Aquinas argues that his argument is actually from experience, from, obs from observing the world. Um, that, you know, stuff moves, therefore, like, it must have been put into motion by something, therefore there must be a first mover. Um, Demia is a little bit different. You'll see his argument at the bottom of the first column and the top of the second on 954. The argument, replied Demia, which I would insist on, is the common one. Whatever exists must have a cause or reason of its existence, it being absolutely impossible for anything to produce itself or be the cause of its own ex existence. And mounting up, therefore, from effects to causes, we must either go on and tracing an infinite succession without any ultimate cause at all, or must at least have recourse to some ultimate cause that is necessarily existent. Now that the first supposition is absurd may be thus proved. In the infinite chain or succession of causes and effects, each single effect is determined to exist by the power and efficacy of that cause which immediately proceeded. But the whole eternal chain or succession taken together is not determined or caused by anything, and yet it is evident that it requires a cause or reason as much as any particular object which begins to exist in time. This is like beat for beat Aquinas's fifth way of proving the existence of God. Everything some comes from someplace. They can't all have, have an infinite succession, like this chain that goes forever. Therefore, there must be some uncaused cause, this thing that brought everything else into existence, and we call it God. 
As Demia goes on, the question is still reasonable why this particular succession of causes existed from eternity and not any other succession or no succession at all. If there be no necessarily existent being, any supposition which can be formed is equally possible, nor is there any more absurdity in nothing's having existed from eternity than there is in that succession of causes which constitutes the universe. What was it, then, which determined something to exist rather than nothing and bestowed being on a particular possibility, exclusive of the rest? External causes... There are supposed to be none. Chance is a word without meaning. Was it nothing? But that can never produce anything. We must, therefore, have recourse to a necessarily existent being who carries the reason of his existence in himself and who cannot be supposed not to exist without an express contradiction. There is, consequently, such a being. That is, there is a deity. That is, we call God, as Aquinas would say. Um... And Cleanthes rips him a new one for this. Like, the rest of part nine is literally Cleanthes taking Philo's position and basically arguing all of this is absurd. Um, in short, like, he is saying that, you know, there, the only reason that we would believe that this being must exist is if it would be contradictory to assume it did not. And yet there's no reason to assume that. Um, he takes Philo's stance and says, what if there is this natural organizing principle in nature? Why can't we reject an infinite succession of causes? Why must we assume some uncaused cause? And what is the even meaning of the words necessary existence? What the heck is nece necessity at all? Like Philo jumps on that one too. Like what the heck is necessity? Um, what's more, Philo goes a step further. Um, he uses the example of like the multiples of nine in arithmetic where like nine times one is nine and nine times two is 18 and nine times three is 27. And in each case, the digits always add up to nine. Nine times two is 18. One plus eight equals nine. Nine times three is 27. Two plus seven equals nine. Nine times four is 36. Three plus six equals nine and so on and so forth. And while we look at that and we assume, oh my gosh, numbers are magic. Arithmet arithmeticians, like people who study algebra, know that there are rules for this. Um, that, like, if you had a base 10 system, you will necessarily end up with this strange operation when you hit 9. If it was a base 9 system, you'd see the same thing at 8. With a base 8 system, the same thing at 7. With a base 16 system, every time you hit 15, the same thing will happen. Like, this is just a way that numbers work. Um, the pure organization of math necessitates that this is the case. And thus... Where you would assume causality, what you are in fact witnessing is the nature of the numbers themselves. Where you would assume the causation of the universe through some organizing principle, really it could just be the nature of matter itself, the nature of the universe itself. There's no need to posit some exterior source, some exterior cause. Perhaps atoms themselves just naturally organize themselves into bodies. Why assume a god? Um, so between the two of them, they really tear Demia a new one. Um, and they very much put to bed this nascent argument in its crib. Um, but notice that both of these like arguments, both of them have been rejected. And at this point, we are no closer to understanding the nature of God than we were at the outset. 
Cleanthes's argument that like God must have similarity to human intelligence because the world seems to be like a machine completely rejected no point in it like the principle could be anything not just intelligence um, for Demia's argument a priori that like there must be the succession of causes leading to some ultimate cause why why does that have anything to do with the way that reason works like why does reason tell us that as opposed to anything else there's no experience in place there's no reason to believe that matter has some organizing principle or doesn't have some organizing principle there is no necessity at all as philo stresses um Dropping all these abstractions, continued Philo, at the bottom of page 955, and confining ourselves to more familiar topics, I shall venture to add an observation that the argument a priori has seldom been found very convincing, except to people of a metaphysical head who have accustomed themselves to abstract reasoning, and who, finding from mathematics that the understanding frequently leads to truth through obscurity and contrary to first appearances, have transferred the same habit of thinking to subjects where it ought not to have place." Other people, even of good sense and the best inclined to religion, feel always some deficiency in such arguments, though they are not perhaps able to explain distinctly where it lies, a certain proof that men ever did and ever will derive their religion from other sources than from this species of reasoning. If you didn't like Descartes' argument for the existence of God, either in Meditation 3 or Meditation 5, if you had beef with Aquinas' five ways, or if you had problems with Anselm's on, or ontological argument, Basically, Philo is expressing that. We've never been satisfied with a priori reasoning. Reason has never done it for us. The only people who insist on using these arguments are either people who are already convinced that God exists, like Aquinas and Anselm, or people who have a mathematical bent, like Descartes. This has never convinced anyone else. Religion has its roots not in rationality, but in something else entirely. Maybe it is experience. But at least it's, you know, recognized that it is not rational experience at that point. Um, maybe it is faith alone, as we'll discuss. Uh, but in any case, this a priori reasoning, Hume will not buy. Uh, this is why he's an empiricist first and a skeptic primarily. Um, he is, if anything, most opposed to the rationalist arguments of Descartes of the a priori theological arguments like Anselm and arguably Aquinas. These hold absolutely no water for Philo, and probably not for Hume either. Um, if you read the inquiry concerning human understanding, he will make that abundantly clear. He will stress that uh, the idea of necessity is a fiction. Um, these logical trains of causality that are built by Descartes and Aquinas depend on an experience that we don't have. Rationality is an empty force, except when it is applied specifically to math or to purely rational ideas. Um, in short, Hume doesn't have any place for it. The only source of knowledge is experience for Hume. Repeated experiences yielding prob high probabilities of the same events happening over and over and over again. Conjoined events leading to customary interpretation of experience as constant and continuous. That is knowledge. The only kind of knowledge. Everything else is nonsense for Hume. Now in the next 
several parts. We're going to break this down even further. We are going to talk about some of the more traditional arguments regarding God, including the problem of evil. Once again, the problem of evil is going to rear its ugly head, and both Demia and Philo and Cleanthes are going to confront it. Um, finally, we will get some actual resolution here. Um, and we will see what Hume's actual thoughts are, or rather, we won't. We will have no conclusion as to what, like, Hume is actually trying to say here, because it's going to get really ambiguous. Um, so, more ahead, and we will finish the dialogues concerning natural religion in next week. In the meantime, make sure to work on that research paper. That should be your major priority at this point. Although, I would not be surprised if you were using Hume to make your case. Um, so if you have questions about that, obviously send them my way. Feel free to email me about this. Like, I would be happy to talk over the paper. Send me early drafts, whatever you need. Get them to me as soon as possible so I can go over them and help you out.